What is up, Shark Nation? Welcome to another episode of the Shark Pod. And we got cut off a little bit at the beginning here, so I'm doing this at a different time. But our guest today is Gavin J. Gallagher um, of the podcast Behind the Facade. We had a great conversation uh, over about an hour or so. Um, really interesting uh, guy when it comes to property development. Great story uh, going through the Celtic Tiger Um getting kind of crazy and uh, making a comeback which is always great to see um, but we really dig into you know how the property development works opportunities all that good stuff so without further ado i'm going to kick it over to the guys welcome to the shark pod the podcast that explores business and lifestyle design in ireland and beyond and now live from greystone studios here are your hosts luke curry and mark baker What is up, Shark Nation? Welcome to another episode of the Shark Pod uh, with me, Luke Curry, your your uh, your <laughs> the guy who talks uh, talks during the show. And then we've got Mark Baker out there in uh, Glenageary, our co-host, um, and we've got Gavin J Gallagher online. How's it going, Gavin? I'm very well today, uh, Luke and Mark. Good to see you both. Yeah, delighted to have you on, Gavin. Like we said, uh, Gavin is the uh, is the the host of Behind the Facade uh, podcast, um, all about uh, property investing. Um, he has huge experience in the Irish property uh, market and abroad. We're going to dig into that as well. Um, this one will be interesting for people who are, you know, I think Mark Baker. I think uh, property is a pretty big uh, part of the Irish psyche. What do you think? Yeah. Um, a big area of interest for for you at the moment. You you won't stop going on about it. And just to to let you behind the facade, Gavin Luke is one of your biggest fans. I think uh, big fan of the podcast. Big fan. Oh, great. I love I love meeting fans of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. It's it's an interesting podcast. I actually get I get quite a few messages from uh, people over LinkedIn and various sort of ways. And 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 a guy actually just messaged me on um, Facebook, and he's a guy based in the UK. But he, he's like one of my most loyal fans. He writes to me quite a bit saying, Gavin, I just listened to that podcast. I absolutely loved that bit. And, and you got to write a book, man, and all this kind of stuff. So it's really it's really rewarding from my point of view. I mean, I'm not monetizing the, the podcast in any shape or form. It's, from my point of view, it's just I like to put the, the stories out there. And I used to be called when I was in college, I used to get this nickname as the Shanaki, you know, the guy yeah. who tells the stories and winds, you know, tells these great long stories and uh, keeps everyone entertained. So it seems to be something that kind of stuck. And, uh, and that's why I do it. We're the same. Like it was our podcast. Like we have not really monetized it any. We tried a few, a few different things, but um, sometimes we get that feedback where we did this like during when COVID hit. Me and Mark were in the first lockdown, and we did like a ninety-minute podcast of business ideas. If you had just lost your job, what would you do? If you had this amount of money, all that type of stuff. And then some guys from Offley emailed us afterwards and said they were testing out some of those ideas because they had both lost their jobs. And thanks very much for putting that out. And it was just real. Like, you know, you do get a buzz. It does. Yeah. It does. It rewards you kind of just you feel like, wow, you know, something that I thought up and, and put out there, somebody's actually taken on board and uh, and is actually kind of going with it. So I find that very rewarding. Cool. So for those people who aren't, uh, you know, aren't uh, familiar with the podcast and your content and everything like that, how would you describe yourself to somebody who you were just introducing yourself to? What would you say? Uh, well, okay, so it, it's a long career. It's 25 years, so it's hard to condense it into kind of 30-second elevator pitch. But I'm a real estate or property investor developer. I have uh, experience going back to the kind of 1990s. I run a business park here in Dublin called East Point, and it's a big corporate uh, office campus, we'll call it. And we have we built it. It's a family business. It wasn't built entirely by myself. It's actually part of a, of a larger family business. But the, um, the, the kind of tenants that we have working in here would be Google, Oracle, Enterprise Ireland, Deutsche Bank. They're really big corporate clients. Uh, but over the years, I kind of went out and did my own thing. I used to struggle to kind of um, uh, with just being sort of part of a, of a bigger organization. I wanted to just do my own thing. I wanted to kind of, if I wanted to buy something, I just wanted to go out and buy it. I didn't want to have to go, go to a committee and a board and kind of talk it through and try to convince my my family, you know, we should buy this or we shouldn't, you know, what should we do? So I started doing my own stuff. And so I went out there and during the pre-crash um, days, during the Celtic Tiger boom, 
I got really, really active and I was just super aggressive. I wanted to be rich uh, and I wanted to be rich quickly. And so I kind of dived in both feet into the, you know, borrowing lots of money and all that. And I was really successful for a couple of years. I grew my portfolio from kind of zero to 65 million in five years. Um, I just kept on hitting these home runs and it was fantastic. And then 2008 came along and everything collapsed and it was a, a total disaster. I ended up 16 million underwater and, uh, and the banks came after me and uh, it's, there's years of, uh, of a story in that alone. So, uh, um, yeah. So, so it's kind of the, the, the rise and fall and the comeback, which is uh, always a great, a great way to, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the hero's journey there. But like when we talk about, so we've had a few people on the podcast that kind of went through the, the Celtic journey, our Celtic tiger journey as well. And it's always very interesting to us because I guess me and Mark, we grew up uh, in, in our, our kind of family backgrounds. We didn't have any like uh, exposure to the Celtic tiger or people in our families weren't really, you know, making moves like that during it so when the only kind of experience that we had is like when i was just leaving college it was really kind of the couple of years before i left college it was kind of 2008 2010 11 i'm coming out of college and everything is just dead in ireland like so yeah, yeah, yeah. we were kind of starting from a, a, a different level um but when when you say that like it was uh people are always saying that it's, it was crazy that you can you could get loans for whatever you wanted and stuff like that was it really like that or is there a little bit of shine put on it in, in hindsight do you think or was it no it really was like that i mean it was absolutely crazy i i you know i could go i can go over like dozens of stories but just the, the kind of the highlight story that i i, I like to tell is that I did one deal, I think it was around about November or December of 2005. And I bought a property and just after I kind of closed the deal and basically, um, uh, you know, I hadn't even paid for it yet. I, I, I was basically like the sale agreed guy, you know, and I, we, we had signed a contract but I had six weeks to close out the deal. And in those six weeks, I was approached by an agent and he said, you know, Gavin, it was a guy that knew me and he had heard that I had bought the property and his client actually asked him to go and approach me to see if I would sell the property to his client instead that his client wanted it, hadn't been quick enough off the, off the draw and, and I secured it and now they wanted it and they wanted me to sort of sell it to them. So I kind of gave them the story, you know, I've got plans for this, I'm going to make a little money on this project, blah, blah, blah. And six weeks after I closed the deal. So 12 weeks after that initial conversation, I put 2.5 million profit into the bank and it was all on borrowed money. I didn't put a cent of my own money into that deal. So that gives you just an, ex an, an idea what was possible uh, with no money of my own down. I borrowed the deposit. I went and then convinced the bank, give us the money to go and buy this thing. And then I basically just kept on telling the guys, look, I'm not selling it uh, unless we can hit the profit that I hope to achieve. But it was going to take me two years to achieve it. And uh, and these guys were just like, okay, okay, we'll just give you the bloody money. And, and that was it, bang, in the bank. And and I just, that that was, for me, that was like a huge, high, you know, highlight of my career. And I kind of thought, geez, you know, what's the IRR on something that you didn't put any money into and you made 2.5 million in six weeks? I mean, it just like, breaks, like... basically breaks calculators, you know? And uh, and so I just, that to me though, was whilst it's the best story, it also turns out to be probably the, the beginning of my downfall. And it was because once you have that kind of level of success in such a short period of time, you can kind of go a bit mad and bonkers and, I had all this money there. I had, I had done a couple of deals similar to that that had produced not as much money, but you know similar kind of levels, and and it was all kind of coming at me at once. And it was like, you know, God, I can do anything. Like I figured out the formula for just creating money, and I kind of I solidly believed that I was going to be worth a hundred million in a couple of years' time if I just keep doing what I'm doing, and so. I didn't want to, I didn't say, okay, well, let's wait till you have a hundred million to have the lifestyle. Let's just have that right now. And so right. I went off to New York, bought a penthouse apartment. I bought a villa in Spain. I had the flashy car. I used to fly everywhere first class or, or business class, or whatever. And it was just the lifestyle just got ahead of myself. And I did not envisage this 2008 crash 
I mean, I, I kind of thought, okay, there's going to be a, a correction in the market, but I didn't think that it was possible that you could have a situation where your where your fortunes were completely turned and flipped upside down, and you end up owing the bank millions instead of being worth millions. That's that's got to be that's a hard turnaround as well because I think because I know we've got a, a mutual friend in Joe Doyle and he had a, a similar story. Uh, Joe was on a, the podcast; he's a friend of the Shark Pod as well, and he really blew us away with his story as well because you know we can talk about how like later on we're talking about investing, getting started now. He's the, I think a great example of someone who sees opportunity everywhere he goes and uh, and stuff like that. But he had the, a, a similar uh, situation where he owed the banks after the two thousand eight crash, but he hadn't even started the the flash lifestyle yet so he i think it might have been not easier for him but a little it wasn't so much of an adjustment right but if you're uh you know have the villa in in uh, marbella or whatever and stuff like that do they say to you they call say gavin we're looking at your assets here uh do you really need the penthouse is it that invasive or is it just oh, letters in the post <laughs> you know? it's, it's more difficult than that because what they first of all it wasn't one bank if it was one bank it would be easier but it's three banks and and then I had a fourth bank in Spain that I, that I had a mortgage with and stuff. And so when you're dealing with that number of people involved, uh, it becomes very difficult because one guy says one thing is you got to do this. And then you're there sort of saying, OK, well, if I do that, will it matter? Because this other guy could still come after me. And so it was trying to corral all of them to agree something. And so I had you know, one bank was making all these demands and I was saying, yeah, but hold on a second. If I do that, then I'm going to leave this other bank completely out of, out of pocket. And, and then, so they'll come after me. And so they'll, you know, make me bankrupt. And what's the point in me sorting out your problem if it's just going to create this other headache for me over here? So it was extremely stressful. And it sometimes felt like you were banging your head against the wall. Like, I mean, and it actually had a lot of personal cost to me because my marriage actually collapsed as a result of all the stress and strain. I was so stressed out that I just kind of like, uh, you know, basically that I couldn't deal with any kind of rows or stuff like that at home. And, and, and that kind of stuff, you know, just blew up the whole marriage. And so it was very costly, both from a financial point of view and a personal point of view. It's interesting then, because then on the other side of that, when you come through that, I think if anyone listens to your podcast, it, you do talk a lot about the mindset um, of being an investor and stuff like that. And when you started, I guess, to come out of that fog uh, after a few years, um, did you make a decision to say, uh, I'm determined not to not, not to get crazy again if, if I can get back to where I was? Um, or you, what's, what's the that transition to get back on your feet? Was it like uh, Joe Doyle where you know, he just had to envision 130 grand and then he went and got it to pay off the banks in the end. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, Joe's got a great story uh, and I really enjoy listening to Joe and talking with Joe. I mean, the thing is, is, I mean, in his case, uh, he, he was coming from a humble background and so it was easier probably for him to kind of shore it back. The problem with what I went through was that I had somehow allowed my ego to get wrapped up in success that I was having. And so it makes it all the more difficult because now you got the flashy car, you got the flashy lifestyle, and you're surrounded by people who, you know, kind of identify you with that. And when you have to start pulling back from that, it can become quite difficult. And it can become, um, I suppose it can almost push you into a depression. And I was finding that it was extremely difficult to relate to people that weren't going through this. I had, I'd, I'd moved down to Spain. I had a load of friends who were sort of multi-millionaires that weren't in the property industry. So they were, you know, still continuing on to have this fantastic lifestyle. One of my friends had this, this incredible house down in, in Spain and he had a, an Aston Martin and he had a Lamborghini and all of this kind of stuff. And he was like, Alan, come on, let's go out and have some fun and all this. And I mean, I was just like dealing with such headaches and I was just like, I can't can't deal with this guy like i mean he's just it's too it's too easy for him compared to where my head's at so i needed to get away so i actually went off to um, to dubai and uh, and to doha and to africa and i was kind of on the lookout for work and opportunities kind of sort of pulling things back so i started working abroad and uh, and i would take weeks over there and then i come back and i'd have a blowout for the weekend i'd meet my pals and we'd have some great fun and stuff like that but it wasn't in my face like constantly while I was dealing with all these headaches. So it made it a little bit easier. 
But you know, who you surround yourself with is very important. You're surrounding yourself with a lot of people that are depressed. That'll also have a negative impact on you. So it, it's kind of, you got to find the balance. You got to find people who are kind of go-getters who are in, in, a, in a similar position to yourself that are aiming high and are kind of, that are somewhere where you want to kind of get to. I think you surround yourself with the kind of the people that you want to be. And, um, but they also have to not be so far ahead of you that you can't relate to it any longer. You know? Yeah, that's very, that's a really good point just at the end there as well. Cause a lot of people, I guess when they're networking, they're networking. So they want to hang out with the, the people, like you said, with the Lamborghinis in Spain or whatever. Um, but there's nothing that you could do for those people at this stage or you know so there's there's groups that we're a part of um there's groups that i'm a part of in like the tech industry in dublin and everyone's kind of in and around the same level we're all going to we all have a vision of where we're going to go and i think that's a, a nice place to be as well um so when you i guess how long have you been back in ireland mate like back on your kind of feet or back on building back here um well i came back in 2015 um but i was still I was still kind of mending uh, the fence. <laughs> I mean, I was, uh, I still had the banks to deal with. And so it took another, I guess, probably another year, year and a half to kind of finalize and get them out from, from my hair. And uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a tough period of time. I came back to Ireland because they, they hit me so hard that I actually literally didn't have a, a penny um, to, of income coming in at all. I actually, had a situation where they had this thing called the, the, the you know, the full rental sweep. And it was every penny of income that I had was swept up and they had access to my bank accounts to do that. Oh and so I went from having this, you know, steady income coming in from all these properties. I would pay my bills. I would pay, you know, uh, so much towards my, you know, my rent and whatever it was. And then I'd have a bit left over and I'd say, okay, now I'll go and pay these guys a big chunk of that to kind of keep them at bay. And they just decided that, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're just going to take every single penny of it. And so suddenly I didn't have any money for rent. I didn't have any. So I actually had to go back home and ask my brother for help. And my brother was very generous. He lives in the U.S., but he had an apartment uh, or a small house in Dublin that was rent. he was renting out. And he basically took it off the rental market and just said, look, stay there until you're back on your feet. And that was really, really, I mean, humbling experience because... He had seen me with the seven-bedroom mansion and you know living this high life, yeah. and then suddenly it's like, "Hey, bro, I need your help. Can you bail me out here?" And he could have easily turned around and said, "I told you so," uh, and no, you know, you're not getting any help because it's your own bloody fault. Yeah. And if he had said that, I probably would have said, "You know what? I deserve it." But thankfully, he, he came clean and he came out and, and helped me out basically. And part of that process was actually what helped me get back on my feet because when you kind of have to you know take such a, a humbling experience and kind of go through that it it sheds away any kind of baggage that you have from the previous lifestyle your ego is shot you've kind of got to say okay i've cleaned out all this bullshit that i was kind of living around and all this stuff and i'm starting fresh and everyone knows i'm starting fresh and so there's no you know pretending that you're still this kind of like and that was part of the process of coming back because once you realize nobody's out there to kind of like rescue you, you've got to make this happen yourself. You've got to go out, you've got to get resourceful, you've got to figure out how you're going to do, but you've got to get humble as well because no one's going to help out somebody who's still letting on that they're the big, you know, big cheese and the big, the big kind of success story on the one hand and telling these great sort of fancy stories. And on the other hand, they're kind of like they can barely afford anything, you know? Yeah. And I think also, like when you're talking about that, you don't want to be the guy who had the, all the great stories, but no kind of vision of where, you know, these new stories will be made. You know, you want to, that's a, that's what inspires people as well. And I think when we're, when we're talking about the property business, it seems, it seems to me that there, it, it's, it's hard for people from the outside to understand how it even works. Uh, I've listened to some of your episodes where it, it seems like it, it requires a lot of creativity in putting deals together, seeing a different angle here. Um, taking something you know some uh, property development or like parking lot or something and making it into a hotel or having that type of vision for that um did, did when you were coming up was your kind of uh the, the thing that was making you successful i think that was like the creative way you looked at different projects or something like that or was it like your ability to get capital what would be the your main kind of 
scale it's it's a good that's a great question um i think it's there's a little bit of a a combination of skill sets that you develop over time like i i studied architecture so i came out of college with a very good idea you know i could close my eyes and i could completely imagine something so that's definitely a set of skills that that helps and uh so when i walk into a property a lot of people just see oh my god this is not working and that's not working and look at the state of the rear garden i'm looking at it and i'm closing my eyes and going oh wow this is going to be amazing like this i can do this i can do this and so that was the first skill set that i developed and that was really helpful and i was able to go off and, and use that i bought a, a nice property that um, was in really poor poor condition and i can remember going out into the back garden and it was completely overgrown and all of the people that were looking at this property on the same day of the viewing as me i could see them not you know going into the rear garden thinking oh geez look at this headache like no chance and i went clambering up through all the bushes and hacked my way down to the back just to see how deep the garden was and i was like wow this is a huge garden this is going to be fabulous and it was that kind of you know being able to see it and a lot of people you know they don't necessarily see that so i think you've got to develop that skill and i and obviously training as an architect was helpful in that regard so i think probably it's good to to look at you know uh, on the internet find projects before and after one of my favorite programs is grand designs and you know they take yeah. the old shed and they turn it into this like amazing property and stuff and i just lap that show up i just love the creativity and the imagination the imagination to kind of do that and so that that's first of all i didn't have any financial skills at all at the at the outset and the first deal i did was in uh, in sligo and it was a property that i bought and i paid 25 grand for this little site and it was a it was a vacant lot in the town in um, in a place called enniscrone and i can remember going out seeing the property and sort of saying okay i'm going to build four townhouses on this property on this so i went off got the planning permission used my architectural kind of skills to do that and after um sort of deciding okay now what am i going to do because i didn't know the whole financial side i had to raise the money from the banks and all that so i thought okay i'll start off by figuring out how much i'll be able to sell each of these four houses so i went to a, uh, an auctioneer in the living in that town and i said how look i've designed these houses how much will I get for each one? And he goes, okay, give me a day or two and I'll figure it out for you and I'll come back to you. So I was waiting for him to call me back with the prices. And he came back and said, I've got a buyer for the site. And I just was like, hey, but listen, I wanted to build these myself. And he goes, yeah, but I've got a, the builder that you're going to ask which says he'll just buy the site from you. And I said, well, how much? 125 grand. And I can remember thinking, whoa, I just put a few months of work into this and a and hundred grand has been created. And that was when I kind of blew my mind because I, at the same time, I was running a little architectural practice and I was doing months and months of work for like five or six grand, you know? And I remember thinking, well, hold on a second, half the time and a hundred grand profit. So I suddenly thought, okay, I got to figure this business out a bit better. So then I started to become basically like a project manager. So I knew how to manage a project and I knew how to kind of put a project together. I wasn't still too sure about the financial side. So I teamed up with these guys that were putting the project together and they wanted me to run the project for them, to be the developer kind of, um, but to be a development manager rather than having any kind of financial role in the deal. So I said to them, okay, Grant, and I can remember thinking to myself, these guys are going to make a few quid on this. So I want to earn some money. So I said, okay, give me five grand a month. So going from where I was, I thought five grand a month, that's fabulous. Like it's a nice few quid. I'll run the job and I'll also learn how to do this job from them. And, uh, and then after a couple of months, I started to see the numbers and stuff that they were, these guys are going to put like a 2 million profit into their pocket or something. I remember thinking 65 grand. I thought I was doing really well. Like <laughs> these guys are making literally millions. Like, uh, and that was a real eye opener. And that's how old I, were you at the time, Gavin? Sorry. How old were you at, the, at this time? Um, I was probably around 26, 27, something like that. Um, so it was an early part. I mean, it wasn't too young, but it was an early stage. And when I saw what they were making, I was suddenly went, hold on a second. I have really got to learn this business because I had no idea this was the kind of money that you could make. And so the next project that I did was a, um, it was basically a, 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 like a shop unit in this uh, neighborhood center. And it was a huge, big, shop unit it was way too big the, the the builder that built it 
didn't have any idea what size shop units should be. And he just built like whatever would have been apartments. He just turned it into one big shop unit. And I, and I can remember buying this. I, I can't remember exactly the price now, looking back at it. It was probably around 750 or something like that. And I can remember buying it for 750 off this guy. And he was only delighted to get rid of it. He wanted to sell apartments. He didn't give a damn about shops on the ground floor and all that kind of stuff. And he was just literally built it because the planning uh, permission required that there was retail on the ground. So he sold it to me. And the first thing I did was went off and tried to find a tenant for this big, big unit. And I couldn't find any tenant that would pay anything near what I thought it was worth. And so I was speaking to an agent. The agent said, you got to go and subdivide the thing. It's, it's like it's way too big. Turn that into three separate units instead. So I went off, got my planning permission for that, built up a wall, put in the drainage for each three units, put in power for each three units, whereas it had all been designed just for one. And suddenly I could find tenants. The tenants would pay much, much more um, for the smaller unit than one guy would pay for the whole unit. And so I, I put three tenants into the three properties. It took me maybe a year in total from start to finish. And I sold that property for about 1.7 million. And so I made a million profit right away there. And then I remember just thinking, wow, this is serious stuff. And I went and did that again, kind of multiple times and kept on doing it. And I just thought, wow, I've, you know, I figured out like the, how to, you know, the monopoly, like yeah. <laughs> how to just keep on making money. This is easy. And that's when the kind of complacency starts creeping in. And I sort of, you have more money burning a hole in your pocket and you start looking at all sorts of stuff left, right and center. It's it's so interesting to see that, that you're you're talking about like an inflection point when you realize how much other people are making. And I think everyone has that in their career at some stage where you're doing and you think you're doing great. And you're like, this is actually not bad. This is good money. Like, you know, I've got yeah. nice, I've got a kind of nice kind of Ford that I bought and everything like that. Everything's going great, you know, uh, and look, I'm doing better than these guys over here that I know or whatever. Uh, so there's all the kind of different levels of the game. And then the day that you find out that the guy sitting beside you or maybe guy that you might be working for, what they're getting out of the deal, and you're like, what? The f- like, yeah, I, can't, yeah. I can't do That's it anymore. And you realize. Yeah. And, and you feel like a mug some, yeah. initially. I'm like, what? Like, I can't believe I agreed to that fee. Yeah. You know? But at the time you got it, you yeah. were only delighted. You thought you were over the moon. Like, God, I can't believe they accepted that. You know? yeah. and, uh, and then suddenly the, the world turns and, and you realize, whoa, these guys could have afforded twice that, you know? It's it's such a, it's an interesting. It's thing. the mindset though. The thing is, is discipline is so important in this game because it's it's that exact mindset that that causes all the problems later because you start getting used to the lifestyle, and that's where we were talking about Joe earlier. Like that's where Joe um, has done really well because he kept a, a lid on that, you know. And um, the best thing that I could have done would just sort of have have a, had a mentor or somebody to kind of say, Gavin this is not going to keep going. This is a one-off or this is you're in this crazy period that will come to an end with a big bang. And when it comes to an end, everyone's going to be running for the exit. You're not going to be able to sell. You're not going to do anything. So start putting that profit into paying down debt. Start put, And then of course, when you're there and you figured it out and you're kind of thinking, geez, why would I wait for the nice car? I can just have it right now. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Why would, you know, because I was into cars as a teenager. So, Things like Ferraris and all that kind of stuff. Like, oh, wow, I'd love to own one of them. Suddenly you can afford it. So of course you're going to go and buy it. But you need somebody on your behind you who's kind of saying, hold on a second, this is not normal. You will not continue to do this. And so you do need somebody in your corner kind of tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hold on, you're getting a bit ahead of yourself here. Just kind of calm down. And that's where discipline, that's why my podcast is all about kind of the mindset and discipline and stuff. And was there any way, like, say, if you're looking back at that period, was there any way to, if you could go back and meet meet Gavin, two thousand three, or whatever, and say, okay, is there any way to avoid the big crash for you if you're in property, or was there kind of no way to avoid it? Maybe it was good that you had a good time with the Ferraris and stuff like that, and then at least you got I think to experience it was. It, you know? uh, I've I've reflected on this long and hard, and there are. I mean, I kind of I look forward now, but there are. There's basically three investments I made that brought the entire show down. And I was doing really, really well. And what it, what it boiled down to was having this outsized kind of vision of my lifespan, of my lifestyle. And I, I bought, I, I did these houses. I built a couple of houses in Fox Rock and they were magnificent. 
we sold one of them for four million. We sold the other one for four point one million. And myself and my partner, we decided, why don't we just keep one each, and that will be our homes. And if we keep them as our homes, then when we sell them, there'll be no tax because it'll be a principal private residence. So that's what I did. Uh, moved into this house. I'm I'm 34, 35 years of age, and it's a massive house, like seven bedrooms. And I've extended it. I put a basement down. I had a gym downstairs. I had a wine cellar. I had the whole lot. Went berserk. And and the and the house was fully paid for. Like there was no debt on the hall, okay? So I am sorted. Okay. But instead of thinking, this is why I now yeah, I'm made now, I'm sorted. There was the the original house that we built these four houses in was still part of our, myself and my partners, you know, assets. And we were saying, what do we do? We just vlog it. And I said, no, 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 I'll buy it and I'll do it up. And then I'll move into that afterwards. And so what I did was went from the, the seven bedroom house that I had fully paid off. I doubled down. I paid my partner for his share. And I ended up owing the bank about one and a half million. And I borrowed that against my own home. Then I go, had to go and do up the house and get permission and all this kind of stuff. So I started borrowing a little bit more to do that. And, and I ended up with a loan of about two million on the house that I had for free. And it was against this property next door that was, it was like a huge old Fox Rock mansion. And what I decided to do was, okay, you know, 5,000 square foot's not big enough. I want 8,500 square foot. And so I went in, it was going to be a massive, you know, it was going to be the dream home. And I, and I instead of recognizing that I already had the dream home, I wanted this much, much bigger dream home. And so buying that cost me an absolute fortune. I, I borrowed about between all of the jigs and rails, about three and a half million. And the bank came in and foreclosed on me on that. And they sold it for 750 grand. You know, it's tough unbelievable. <laughs> and the thing is, is yeah. it was, that was, that was a deal that like, I just could not avoid because at this stage, I already had my principal private residence. I couldn't argue with the bank that, well, why don't you let me keep this one as well and run the two together? You know, it was just so much death all tied up. So that was one of the ones that pulled me down. At the same time, I had an idea that I wanted to have an office in the city center that I owned outright rather than renting or anything like that. So I bought a Jordan townhouse uh, overlooking the canal in Herbert Place. Nice. And I paid 2.4 million for that property. And I thought, okay, again, the architecture, the vision, the lifestyle, I wanted to have this pristine, like restored Georgian townhouse, amazing in the middle of town, walking distance to everything. And I was going to do, uh, I was going to do a big news house at the back that would be kind of like a pied de terre, and I'd have my office, and I had all this. So it was going to be amazing. Yeah. Again, big vision lifestyle. I'm, a, I'm going to be worth a hundred million in a couple of years. Of it's course, this is nothing, you know. <laughs> and so bought that, and then suddenly the whole market turned, and. And there with 2.4 million, bank asked me to sell it. I was saying, but sure, look, the market's collapsed. Why don't we keep it? But it wasn't generating enough income to pay the bills. And so they wanted, they forced me to sell it, sold it for 685,000. And it was just painful. So there's 5 million alone thrown in the air and just like let it blow away in the wind, you know? And once he, once I started to do that kind of stuff, I can remember thinking to myself, what a bloody idiot. If I had just sat back, if I hadn't bought that property, if I hadn't bought the big house, if I had just, I was living in a seven bedroom, brand new house with a wine cellar and a gym and I owned it outright. I didn't have any debt. And instead I went off and I borrowed another five million to have these two lifestyle uh, things that were going to help me fulfill the vision of my lifestyle. And all I needed to do was you know, pull back from that. And I would have certainly had five million to go and pay down debt, keep the banks away, keep them at, at bay. And then the other thing that I did was I got super ambitious with this huge project in Spain. And the reason I moved to Spain was because I saw this deal and I thought to myself, I know I can be, you know, the next, I don't know, whoever, like the Candy Brothers in London or something like that. I can, I can come up with this incredible deal. And so I, I, I basically decided that everything I had done so far was a certain scale. This was one I was going after. It was going to be 40 million deal. I had to go and raise 40 million. And then I was going to double the value of it. So it was going to be worth 85 million in a couple of years time. And in addition to that, I was going to get all of these fees paying me every year. So I was going to have this fantastic lifestyle where I can live in Spain. I've got half a million a year coming in in income. 
and I have an asset worth 80 million that I only paid 40. So this was a fantastic thing. And that actually went completely wallop, every single penny lost. And so it was a disaster. Now, as it turns out, 12 million of that came from investors, me being 3 million of it came from myself. So I put 25% down, uh, I raised 9 million from investors. Then we went off to the bank. We got a bank, uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland, I think it was in Spain. They lent us, they said they were gonna lend us 30 million. And then when the project was ready to actually pay for, uh, they said no chance because the, the crash had happened at that stage. Okay. And we weren't able to fulfill certain obligations that we had. To. So they had cleaned me out for 800 grand in fees, arrangement fees, non-utilization fees, all of this stuff. They cleaned 800 grand out of me and then they didn't give me a penny of the money that, that, that I had agreed with them. So, um, so we lost 12 million lock, stock and barrel. The entire 12 million was lost. And so... I had, on top of banks in Ireland chasing me for money, I had very unhappy, understandably unhappy investors in Ireland who had funded this project in Spain and were wondering why the 12 million was now worth zero. And so you can see the headaches that I was trying to deal with over about five to 10 years. And those headaches, Mark, this is what I'm thinking about when I'm hearing all these stories. I'm thinking about the the type of... uh, the money that we're talking about there it's it's almost like you're you're just doing it's just a different mindset as in it's the monopoly game you're trying to you're trying to get to the next level of you know it, you could be doing that at 100 grand and t- uh, trying to shoot for a million but you're shoot, trying to shoot for 80 million it doesn't seem like there's that much difference in the what you're good what you're doing you're getting the investors together you're dealing with the that's, banks that's kind of what i point out in in my own um podcast is that the principles apply all the way up the chain to hundreds of millions. Do you know what I mean? It's not. It's no different up at the top than it is at the bottom. And uh, and I was. I, it's funny. I had this very conversation with Joe Doyle a, a few weeks ago. And the thing is, is that when you go and the first, like my my salary when I started out as an architect was sixteen grand a year, and so that's where I started at. Yeah. And and I bought this property for for twenty five grand and and made a hundred. Like that was kind of like monumental amount of money to make 100 grand geez that's incredible but within five or six years of that two and a half million in six weeks was, was what i was doing and it conditions you you keep on just getting a little bit more ambitious and a little bit more ambitious and the thing to do you know my advice to everyone is as difficult as it is is to remain as disciplined as possible so that you can keep those emotions back constantly remind yourself that this is a cyclical market and that you might be going through this amazing, you know, period like now. But mark my words, it's going to go through some sort of a massive crash. Unexpected. No one's going to see it coming. And then suddenly you're all running for the exit and nobody can get out. And that's when property prices just go down through the floor. My portfolio went from 65 million with 40 million of debt down to, I think it was 20, um, 24 million. So I was 16 million negative. And it was, I mean, my assets were worth 24 and my debt was worth 40. So I was 16 million below the asset value. And um, it was a total disaster from that point of view. Now, thankfully, it started to come back after a couple of years, but the damage was done, you know, and um, the income was done, you know, they, they grabbed the income, they grabbed everything. But when I look back and think to myself, all of the money that I was making, stuff like that, I could have easily chipped away that 40 million debt and brought it down to 30. You know, if I had just been disciplined and if I'd stopped living the lifestyle, I could have said, you know what, I, I can have this 40 million of debt I can pay down. And instead of focusing on lifestyle, just focus on being sensible and knowing that this is this kind of crazy period you're going through, it'll come to an end. And how do you want to be positioned when it does come to an end? I like that kind of long-term thinking as well. And I think that from now, so that's kind of like the, the that's, that's it brings us up to today um and what what type of uh, what type of opportunities are there for uh, a lot of people that are coming up now and i think that like for instance like with when you work in uh, technology in dublin they you get quite well paid um i say sometimes i tell mark about some of like people that i know in tech here and he gets angry you know so there's there's a there's levels to the game in uh, technology in dublin as well and so there's it spins off a lot of cash uh, because i think that 
all the jobs that we do here and um, because we have exposure to like my job in particular has exposure to all like all countries in europe so my job sucks in money from all of these different territories that's why those types of jobs do well right yeah. um but so what what do people do with the, these uh like a lot of my friends in different so i know people all over the, the kind of tech spectrum in dublin and a lot of my friends they they're really good at their job but they're not they're not good at investors they've never they haven't they have no experience of that i know one guy in particular i went for a walk with him recently and um he has so he works for a different tech company i won't say who but uh he's been working there for a few years and he has uh say four or five hundred grand in stock in one stock there right i'm thinking that's that's pretty risky to you know if something happens i mean the thing is is you want to understand that People who go on to become billionaires usually have the concentration of wealth in one stock or one asset class. And it's highly risky, but it's also can be highly rewarding. And in my case, that's what I was doing. I was gambling massively. I was betting all on red or betting all on black, you know, as opposed to being more cautious, spreading out your bets. Like if I had spread out my bets and said, okay, I'll put a little bit in stocks, a little bit in bonds, a little bit in this. I wouldn't have gone anywhere near the money that I had made, but I probably would have been much more secure and safer. And also the lifestyle wouldn't have gone mad uh, because I wouldn't have been able to have that lifestyle. And so there's a certain amount of realization. You've got to, if you're going to play that game of you know, chess or, or gambling, basically, is what it is. If you're going to play that game, you've got to be so disciplined. This is why Warren Buffett is so successful because he's incredibly disciplined. He doesn't care what the market's doing. He just buys because the value says that it's a good deal. Uh, whereas everyone else is getting caught up in, oh my God, Bitcoin, this, you know, they're frothing at the mouth when it's frothy. And then as soon as people start saying, no, 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 get out of it, it's, and they're all running for the door. They don't have, they haven't made up their own mind. They're just going with the herd, you know? And I think that's a big risk. And so in that case, these guys, so say there's there's literally thousands of people that are working in that area in, in Dublin and they might all have a, you know, a certain amount of stock or a certain amount of uh, kind of wealth that they've generated there kind of almost as a, uh, a byproduct of what they do for a living, which is great, right? Um, when, I, when I talk to these people, a lot of them don't know what to do with that money. So they're investing in ETFs or whatever, or, you know, and they're, you know, the income, they double their money kind of every 10 years or so give or take and that's that's the that's the go-to but say if those people wanted to get going and have some kind of real assets and uh and real estate like but you know to to get going or they just buy one apartment or should they pool their money what would be your advice to kind of a group of uh tech guys who have like you know i don't know like six or seven hundred thousand in in their stock portfolios and they want to take some of that and like would it be just you know, buy a few apartments or maybe buy like a development project or <laughs> give your money to somebody well, who knows what I they're doing. Or... What you've got to have is um, one, of the, one, of the way, one of the reasons that I did quite well back at the time is that I had the development skills. Um, and what I used to do was offer my development services to my friends and my kind of network as I'll, I will do all of the work. You guys invest in the project. So, so say, for example, the three of us, uh, we would go 33, 33, 33 into the deal. We'd each put a, a chunk of whatever money we need to get into the deal. And then I would run the project. And the project, uh, my, my, my service as, a, as running the project would be paid out of the three of us. So I'd be chipping in my own share of my fee, if you know what I mean. And, and that was a great way to do it because we would all pool together and we could do an awful lot more with the pooled funds. Um, now, there was downsides to it with, people getting into partnerships and stuff. And when the partnerships go wrong, it's really bad. So you've got to do it in companies. And there's all sorts of reasons not to do it in partnerships now. Uh, but at the time, it was all the advice regarding tax and stuff. It was like, oh, do it in a partnership. You know, you, know, you pay far less tax. And stuff. That was the advice. Um, I think if I was, uh, you've really got to know what your strengths are if you're going to get into the property business. If you're a person who has absolutely no time at all um, if your job is like super intense, as a lot of people have, like solicitors, for example, they work very long hours. They're not great investors if they're going to have to roll up their sleeves and start doing work on a project and, and like renovate a house or something like that. Um, buy to let might make a lot of sense in that regard because it's passive. But the reality is there's very little money to be made on the buy to let, certainly if you buy it in the Dublin area. 
you know, there's like three or 4% yield on your money. It's, it's not really worth it. You're hoping for capital growth. I think the better option is to probably buy a fixer upper and you can kind of buy something, um, you can do it up, you can repair it, you can extend it perhaps, you can kind of tidy it up. You know, what I said that I did when I, back in the early days is stepped into a, a house and it was an executor sale. The lady uh, was very elderly who had died and she left the house to her five kids. Kids don't want it, they want to sell it. And I came along and instead of seeing all of these old sinks and stuff and thinking, oh, geez, it's terribly old fashioned. I was thinking, fantastic, you can rip everything out, start fresh. But that's because I had the mindset, like the architect's kind of design mind. But if you're a person who's super intense in, in a work and the last thing you want to do is go to a building site and go, oh, geez, what am I going to do now? You, know? you need probably to have in your network somebody that is trustworthy that can kind of say, look, I know exactly what I'm doing here. I'll roll up my sleeves. I'll do all the work. You guys run the, you know, you guys will own the project with me. I, I'll take a leg with you because that way um, I'm, you know, invested you in, the project, skin in the game. Skin in the game. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but we're all chipping towards the value that I create because I am going to probably add a significant amount of value to the property. I'm not just doing that for a fee. I'm doing that for a bit of a success fee, a bit of a bonus. And I'm also in in with my capital to kind of own a piece of the action as well. It's interesting because it's interesting to say about the buy to let because I actually like I was a an accidental landlord. I I bought an apartment in Dublin uh, in Dublin eight, just out of college. Uh, we like back then we got it for eight percent down. It was crazy and wow, uh, yeah. we we not, it was not a, today. <laughs> and it was a struggle to scrape together that, uh, but. The, uh, so I, I actually moved to Canada for a few years and I was working for a startup there and uh, I was renting it out um, and I thought this is great you know my my mortgage is x and the rent is y and uh, there's a, a nice little uh, uh, gap there but over the the two years like after paying everything and fixing things and everything it really wasn't that uh, that much in it it took way more time than I thought it was going to uh, and if you would have averaged the hours spent on setting it up and working with property manager and all that type of stuff it really wasn't worth that much um so i think i think maybe that idea of uh, being a manager of maybe i'll go around to mark baker what do you think about this i'll go to my tech friends like yeah let's let's pool our money and i'll be the manager and uh we'll do some fees well as long as you have the skills because she's gonna say that oh yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> the thing is right. is that um i had i had done yeah. projects i'd worked with builders i knew the whole process and and I, I'd also gotten like plenty of exposure over a couple of years of renting places, how to find the tenants, how to deal with the legal aspect, because you're always meeting solicitors. I, I, I used to spend, I'd say, a third of my time dealing with solicitors, either buying, selling, creating leases, um, you know, financing loans, shareholder agreements. It's just kind of avoid that aspect of it. And so you need somebody who's good at that kind of thing. And so I had that mindset to kind of i look after all that you guys just keep paying the fee so i would get a monthly fee but it would be paid by the partnership and the okay. partnership would be raising the money from the bank so you'd buy something for say half a million and you'd say okay in order to convert this building or do whatever we're going to do refurbishment or something we need 400 grand and that is going to fund the fees the architect fees and all of the various professional fees including my fee and it's going to it, pay for the builder and the work and all that kind of stuff. So you borrow the money and now that money is going to go out in dribs and drabs to architect, engineer, to myself as the project manager. And you would then do the construction, you do the loans, you do all of the work that needs to be done. And then you'd sell the property or you'd refinance it and then release yourself back your original investment. And it was a great thing to do. I mean, it was, it was a huge success at the time um, I, can, I can remember, you know, I, in my best year, I pulled in a million in fees um, doing all of that. Now, I, by that stage, I had built up a decent team. So I actually had like a number of mouths to feed in the office. But it was, it was a good business. And I kind of figured the more I grow this, the more deals I get exposure to, the more people that come to me. Instead of me looking for deals, people were coming to me saying, Gavin, you're the guy who's, who's running these projects. We'd like you to come in on this with us. And so I started having that kind of um, which was a great way to find more deals. It's, it, 
so interesting. There's so many different angles when you talk about property. Sometimes I was listening to your podcast and there was a guy from, I forget his name now, uh, he was from Westport in, in, uh, uh, in uh, Mayo and he was he talked about kind of buying, like what would you do if you had no money to to do this business? That's a great mindset to have. Say if you, if you had to find someone else's money to do this. Um, there's so many different angles uh, when you're talking about property. But if you, say if you were starting from scratch, uh, and you're saying, okay, I want to get into property. What would be your move? Would you go into uh, commercial? Would you go into um, like the kind of renovation projects? What do you think would be the, where would you start if you're getting Well, working? starting today, uh, it's funny. I had a, a coaching call this morning with a lady um, down in Waterford. And she's actually, um, she's getting into the game herself. And I mean, the thing is, is, if you go outside of the Dublin area, there's actually great yield to be got on properties. And so she's buying stuff for 140 grand and she's she's getting kind of 1600 a month in rent or 1500 a month in rent. Nice. So it's immediately thrown up more than 10% cash, which is great if you consider we're in negative interest rates pretty much, you know? Yeah. So from that point of view, I would definitely go outside of the city or if you're knowledgeable enough to do it, get into house building because... We're, you know, we're a nation that just cannot supply the amount of houses that we need, and therefore they're always going to be in demand. And so I do think house building, that's something that, I'm, that my, the family business I'm in, we actually we have a commercial division and we have a house building division, and the focus is very much on the house building division now because that's where, that's where the action is. And you can either sell the property or you can rent it, and there's all sorts of ways to finance it as well. Now you've got the funds are coming in, of course, it's a, it's a dirty word to say, but the funds are, are trying to buy up blocks of apartments and stuff like that. And so instead of having to sell it off to 20 or 30 different individuals, you can just sell it to one fund who wants the whole thing locked up and barrel. And so it's like commercial at the moment is very difficult because with the exception of, say, warehouses, warehouses have been extremely resilient and have weathered the whole pandemic well. But restaurants, hotels, you know, bars, They've all like basically been shut down for the last year. Office buildings, most people are working from home at the moment. They will come back, but they've gone through a, a pretty difficult time. So there's, so I wouldn't be piling to commercial, except that you've got a long-term kind of vision and you're kind of thinking about it and you're saying, okay, where is the puck going to be? To, to quote Wayne Gretzky and the old uh, ice hockey kind of stuff is, you know, there's there's technology is coming on stream. Um, you know, the if you think about the um, the high street, every single town up and down the country has got a high street, and that's been terribly damaged by the pandemic. And everyone is buying the big. But I do think the high street will come back. And the question is, what will it come back as? You know, it it might be reconfigured slightly. But I live in the Blackrock area in Dublin, and there's a um, there are three cafes in in black rock and you go down on a saturday or a sunday and there are lines around the block to queuing up to get themselves a coffee a scone a sandwich whatever it is that these guys do and they're just they're they're minting it you know yeah and at the same in the same street there's a costa and there's a starbucks nobody queuing near it it's it seems like the kind of the artisan kind of privately owned stuff is where it's all at now you know um but as a landlord, you'd be there saying, oh, I'd much prefer the Starbucks because it's the big corporation, you know, paying me the rent instead of the, the, the mom and pop store or whatever. So you have to kind of think forward a couple of years and say, OK, what, what's what's the future hold? How's technology going to change this? There's also there's things like ghost kitchens, um, which are kind of going to become a bigger, a bigger thing now. You've got um, the micro mobility, scooters, uh, electric bikes. All of that is changing the way we do things. You're going to have Uber and these kind of uh, automation cars, you know, automated cars. It sounds very far-fetched, but it's not that far away. And in Las Vegas, there are taxi. There's a taxi company that is now has now done 75,000 miles in fully autonomous mode. Now it has a driver sitting there in case, yeah. but the car has driven autonomously 75,000 miles in this stage. So it's it's it is coming, and you have to kind of think to yourself, okay, where do I want to be when all of this happens, and and how can I put myself? But until I get there, 
housing does seem like a pretty safe bet. Okay. And that's, it's interesting that you talk about that because I was thinking about this recently in my own, in my own career. All of, the, all of the big moves that I've made have been around innovation and good ideas that I had. And how much of a week do I spend having, putting some time into just thinking about where is this, where's the business going? What are we going to be doing five years from now? Like it's very, very little. You get kind of bogged down in the day to day very quickly, and then it's four o'clock in the afternoon, and your your all your your best energy is spent, right? So I'm th- I'm trying to build in a part of the week where I'm I'm thinking about bigger picture stuff, and um, it's it's even it's more enjoyable work to do anyway. Um, but Gavin, listen, I know we've been uh, we're trying to keep it under forty five minutes. We blew right through that. That's the that's the usual. No problem. About it. <laughs> but I, I just on the point you made there, um, I would say that it's it's a good habit to get into is maybe a day a month, block out the entire day as a kind of call it your vision day. And uh, don't go to the office, go to cafe or someplace where you're away from the distraction and just bring like a notebook or something and do that brainstorm where you're kind of thinking, okay, where's, where, you know, how can I be innovative working? Where are things changing? And like map out the next couple of years, try to do that once a month because you'll figure out something along that period. You'll never do it in an hour sitting at your desk, uh, you know, between meetings and stuff like that. It just doesn't happen. Well, you got to block it out for a whole day and just like really brainstorm the whole thing. I think that it's a, it, the, the vision quest, I think uh, we'll call that day, Mark. We might, might do that together once a month. We can get together. Absolutely. I think. Um, uh, Gavin, we do have a little bit of a tradition on the, the podcast. I know we're pushing time, Mark, but what's the three, the, the lightning round that we usually run, what's the three or four burning questions you've got for Gavin here? Okay. Where do we start? <laughs> um okay is it who you know or is it what you know it's funny you say that <laughs> i actually think it's who knows you and uh and that's a big thing i mean what you know is obviously very important who you know is very important but when people know what you're doing and what you're about they come to you and so opportunities come your way because you know stuff um people come your way because you know they know that you know stuff and so i think it's actually you flip that on your head and it's what people know about you and your skills and your so that's one of the reasons why i'm kind of prolific now in the podcast on my youtube channel all of that kind of stuff i try to put as much stuff out there so that people kind of see me as an authority in this space and you know people reach out because of that that definitely works yeah. We actually had that answer once already. Uh, from, uh, from important, yeah. It's so Rob Cullen. Rob Cullen. I mean, who yeah. you know and what you know, it's all part of the same thing, but who knows you is, is another aspect yeah. of that that you need to keep in mind. Um, okay. I was going to say, just on, you, that, just on that point as well, uh, I remember you had um, Daniel Priestley on the, the podcast. Daniel, well. yeah, great, great guy. Yeah, actually, he knows how to do it. <laughs> I, got that, uh, yeah, I got that book, um, Key Person of Influence. I think it was an amazing book. It was like a 200-page, you could blow right through it, but it's really like how many people are... So I think I talked to Mark about this as well, like, but it's it's all about kind of being that person of in that space, owning that. Um, so many people on this is what I always think. Some so many people on LinkedIn are sharing posts, but very little people are actually producing the content, and that's the people that's, that are. Yeah, it's very. That's it. Yeah. Daniel is a fantastic example of that. Um, I went to London once a month to actually go and attend Daniel's. Uh, it's called the KPI Accelerator. And it's the key person of influence, and it takes basically all the content in that book, but you're gonna, but it goes into like a, it's basically a workshop once a month, uh, with all of the accountability of being surrounded by like-minded people. It was absolutely fantastic. And when I came out of that, that's when I started to produce the content that you're now kind of like you guys have found me through my podcast. Yeah. It's all because of that KPI thing that I did with Daniel. Amazing. Anyway, sorry, I kind of stepped on Mark there. What was the next question, Mark? Uh, this, this is a, a new one, actually, that I just thought of based on a lot of people have kind of recommendations. Um, you see it online, but they haven't actually like habits and routines, but they haven't actually done anything and they might still be 21 years of age. You've kind of come through it all. So I'm kind of interested to ask you, do you have now, based on what you've been through, do you have any daily habits or routines that, that you think work for you? Yes, very much so. And, and lo and behold, if, if I don't do them, um, first thing, I, I get up early every day, seven days a week. I don't have a weekend schedule. I just, I get up at five every morning, seven days a week. I, when I get up, I go down and the first thing I do, hit the cattle. 
uh, make, a, make a nice cup of tea and uh, like a herbal tea or something like that. And I do a meditation for 10 to 15 minutes. And that I, I use one of the, the meditation apps. And um, it's a great way to just kind of like get yourself grounded. And then I take out a notebook and I write. And it's kind of like what we're talking about, vision and, and all that kind of stuff. I usually reflect on yesterday, how I showed up. You know, was there anything that I need to kind of work on to improve? Like I have a very, um, I used to be completely fixated on just property and making money. And if you live like that, you end up with a very skewed life. You end up with all, you know, all the money is in one corner and all the other aspects of your life are kind of, you know, suffering. So whether that be your family, whether that be your health, whether that be, you know, your feeling that you're contributing to the, you know, to the world and whatever, all of that stuff, that's kind of, if you think about a circle and, uh, and so I kind of think about the circle and I think about those other areas and I so make sure that I'm not getting too focused in one so that you have that rounded because success is, you know, the, the problem with uh, the way the world works these days is that people see somebody driving a Lamborghini and they think, oh, success, that's success. But that guy might not speak to his wife, his kids might have disowned him. You know what I mean? That's not success, you know, that other aspect of his life, but you only see the outside. And that's one of the reasons why I kind of, I, t- I talk to people about just stay focused on what you can control around your life. Don't be looking at, um, at others and comparing yourself with them because you have no idea what's going on behind closed doors. You might have a guy that's, you know, all over the place, you know, financially he's doing great, but like mentally he's in a dark place. He's, you know, he's unhappy. His health is in the toilet, all of that kind of stuff. So I, I do that. And then I hit the road and I do either a run or I do some exercise. I, I try to do burpees. I like to do lots and lots of burpees. And that's, uh, that's kind of like my, I have a love hate relationship with them. And uh, I try to do a thousand burpees in a single session once a year for my birthday. And, uh, and I, so I do a thousand burpees plus my age. And so last year I did 1,048 burpees in a single go. And, uh, and it takes a bit of training to get up to that, to the ability to do that in a single go. And so it, it, I just like keeping fit. And I like to kind of, I think that fit body is a fit mind. And so I can weather the resilience. In fact, going through all of the troubles that I had and stuff like that, I put a lot of it down to surviving that is down to my health and fitness and my focus on just being the fittest version of myself. Good. I think underpinning all that seems to be um, discipline. I think that seems to be really, really important. Um, yeah, I, two things, discipline and patience. Those are the two things that you need to reinforce mm-hmm. in your mind. You need the discipline, but you also need the patience. Like you're not going to, you need the discipline to see it out long-term. You think you're going to get results in six weeks. I'm trying to build a YouTube channel at the moment and I've put out a couple of videos and they've been really popular, but I've like, I've got a couple of hundred subscribers. I don't have millions of views. And I was, I was speaking with a guy called Paddy Galloway and Paddy is one of the top YouTube consultants in the world. He's an Irish guy and he's only, yeah, he's only in his twenties, he's a, but he's really smart and he's advising some of the biggest YouTubers on the planet. And we were ch- chatting last week. I had a consultation with him and he was just saying, it's like constant, it's, it's, it's consistency. It's like putting it out regularly, week after week, and it is not an overnight. You're not going to get the viral hit. It's going to be a slow, over a couple of years, that's how you do it. That's the mindset you have to have with property as well. You think you're going to win it all in one deal, you're probably going to end up going wallop. The, that's what I, I often think about when I think about property as well, like the, the, the turnaround, like even, so I live in Greystones and there's all these property developments that are happening here and I'm sure they do it, like the, the builders are doing very well out of them because the prices are, like I thought when I got when I got this house, I thought I, I'm a gobshite, I got this at the very top. There's no way anyone's going to pay anything more. There was, it was an along. emotional purchase, do you know what I mean? Like, and uh, yeah. my wife was there and everything, like then it, you know, they brought us in all the signature. I remember signing for it, I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this but uh, you know uh, but then, there, yeah. then it just keep, yeah, then it just they just keep going up and up around here um but the like since i moved in here three years ago there's a, a big project going on behind me that it's kind of just finishing now it's years and years uh in, in the future and when you when you work in a technology especially when you work in a, a sales environment like us it's monthly targets you only mm. see 30 days ahead which i think skews i don't know if it's a it, it might be a good thing in the uh in a fast 
changing industry but i, I have often think if we had like yearly targets we could i don't know what we could do do you know we, we could really plan out um yeah, yeah. deals but it's a totally different mindset by the way we we just built a couple of houses in Delgany, so it's, oh really um, yeah a little project called ashcroft and um it's uh it's, it, we've sold them all now so it was a nice project that i actually considered moving out myself because it's a nice part of the world out there yeah um, it's, it's a it's kind of sucks you in around here everyone like, if you like running and swimming and psych it's it's that's it that's yeah. why i actually quite like so I, I, I kind of start thinking to myself, mm, yeah I could, I could live out here you know I, <laughs> I blame the happy pair twins yeah <laughs> yeah the happy pair yeah, we've had sure. steven on the on the podcast as well i see him uh running around <laughs> in his jean shorts he's living the dream and we support him completely <laughs> um, you know i've got the okay. dry robe and everything. okay last last, last one. one last one um last one if you could advise somebody to learn one skill what would it be Oh, that's a difficult one. One skill, because there's so many skill sets needed. I, I, I guess probably the most important skill is uh, delegation, um, because any scale that you want to build up to is not going to be done by yourself. You have got to learn, and it's actually a weakness of mine. I'm not particularly good at delegating. And um, you know, if you want to grow your business, to a certain size you can do all of that yourself you can be you know the the man who does every single aspect you know the the, the guy that just does every every odd job and you can do it all and you can do it fine but if you want to go and scale your business the only way you're going to do that is with a team around you and so that is a, a skill in itself like the ability to manage a team and to delegate effectively and to keep everything everyone motivated everyone kind of going at delivering on targets, all that. That is a real skill that, because, you know, we call ourselves a, you know, I call myself kind of a, a master of nothing but a practitioner of everything because I can do all of the aspects of the project, you know, and that's, I suppose, what makes me an effective project manager is that I can do them all. But I, I was I was not great at the actual delegation side where I give the job to somebody else. And, uh, and that's where I probably ran into a couple of difficulties I think it was probably my own fault because I didn't delegate effectively. It's like that piece of advice was aimed directly at me. So uh, I, yeah. I acknowledge that. <laughs> Mark needs to let, let go. But uh, one more question, uh, Gavin, before you go, would you prefer a Shark Pod t-shirt or a Shark Pod mug? Um, if you have medium, I'll take a t-shirt. We will get that out to you as soon as we can. Gavin J. Gallagher, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Where can people learn more about you, find out about what's going on? You can find I've got a I've got a website called GavinJGallagher.com, and I have a, a YouTube channel by exactly the same name Gavin J Gallagher, and then um, a social media Gavin J Gallagher for pretty much everything. So you can find me pretty much anywhere. But I have my own podcast, obviously called Behind the Facade, and uh, uh, that's a um, that's where I give, give like one hour talk once a week, um, either with a guest or by myself, and. Uh, the guests recently have been quite good, and uh, including Joe Doyle and uh, and various people. And there was actually one that you guys might be interested in. There was a chap called Galen Bales, and Galen scaled a business up to about five hundred million in value when he was still in his twenties, just right. out of college. And uh, I mean, incredible story. So you should listen to that one. Absolutely. Okay, it's a great tip, and we'll put all that in the show notes. Uh, Gavin, thanks very much for joining us on the Shark Pod tonight. My pleasure, guys. It's been a